my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Listen, Jesus is living out what David pointed to. He's there. He's still alive. But he's beaten and bruised. He's exposed and dying. Being forsaken by the Father for the sin for the sin of this people. And the soldiers in that moment gloat. They gloat over it. They take his clothing because what possible need would he ever have for it again? And still he remained. Still Jesus remained on that cross because of, because of his obedience to the Father and because of his love for us, Jesus was willing to remain, willing to be wounded once more Because that's what love does. And I want to be careful, though, because I don't want you to walk out of here today thinking for one second that I'm telling you that love means getting hurt. Now, there's some truth in that, but we have screwed that up as a people, okay? I am never going to be telling you to stay in some sort of abusive situation because love is about suffering. And so let's be really clear. If you're in a relationship right now with someone who is mistreating you, someone who is abusing you, staying with them, that's not love. That's not love. Staying in that isn't a mark of your love for them. It's a mark of your fear. Love always asks, what is the best thing for the object of your love? And staying and being violated and being mistreated and abused is not seeking their good and it's not seeking your good either. Jesus hung on that cross. He suffered those wounds because it was what was best for you and because it was what was best for you. For him. Remember, Jesus had said that his food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It was best for Jesus to be obedient, and it was best for us that he pay the penalty for our sin because apart from him, we're the dead men. That's the first thing we see there. It's love wounded. The second thing we see is love extended. Look back at verse 26. In verse 26, we're, gonna, we're not going to read that whole section again, but what we see is Jesus, he's, he's there on the cross, and what he does is he, he still shows concern for those around him. As we look at him there, we, we see him suffering. That's all you can see as you look at Jesus in that moment. You see him in his suffering, but as Jesus, as Jesus found himself in that moment, he saw his people standing there by the cross of Jesus where his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Well, these women were there. Three of them named Mary. Okay, so evidently that was a really popular name, but somebody else was there too. Did you see it? Did you see him there? It's there in verse 26. In verse 26, we're told that Jesus saw his mother and, do you, do you, and the disciple whom he loved. Now, we know that's John, right? I mean, we know that. That's how he refers to himself throughout this whole gospel. That, be, that had become his identity as he wrote his gospel. He identified himself as the disciple Jesus loved. And I can't help but wonder if this was the moment that John truly grabbed hold of that identity. At this moment in time, as Jesus hung there, He didn't ask for anything of them except that they extend the love that he was demonstrating for them at the cross. I was telling someone this week how our youngest child is at the point of trying to figure out 
man trying to figure out this whole concept of love. And so he'll say things like, um, I love you with my whole heart. And it's like really sweet right at night when he's trying to score a snack or something. I love you with my whole heart. Or, and this is the one that he'll say that kind of gets you. He says, I love you more than you love me. And he's a pretty clever little kid. He told me the other night that it's easier for him to love me more because he only has two parents and we have four kids. <laughs> and I thought, first, okay, all right, that's pretty good math for a five-year-old. All right. And then the second thing was, that's not how love works. And so I just said, buddy, I don't, I don't know if you'll be able to understand this, but your mama and me love Love all of you with our whole heart. You see, love doesn't make sense mathematically. You know, it doesn't divide up neatly like we want it to, like we think it should. It's just not, it doesn't fit into a mathematical category. And so it's not the, like, it's not the size of the ring that demonstrates the love in the heart. It's not the number of children in the relationship that, that determines how much love each child gets. It's not how many years you've been together that proves love or not love. It's not, that's not how it works. There's no mathematical equation to throw it into. And Jesus shows us that. He shows us here how love extends beyond all of our expectations and how we and how we are to extend his love even today, even in moments when it seems like there is no more to give. Jesus shows us that there's always more because there's always more of him. This is what we see. This is love extended. We see it extended even from the cross in that moment. Now look back at verse 28. After Jesus extended love from the cross, after he encouraged an ethic that we would carry over as we extend his love, as his people ministering to one another and, as, and to those around us, he makes a statement that's easily one of the most weighty and profound in all of scriptures, right there in verse 30, where we read, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It is finished. You know, that, that it is finished is only one word in the original language. It's just one word that encompasses that whole idea. It's the word tetelestai. If you ever see that, that's what that means. I actually know people who have had that, that like tattooed on their shoulder, and they're like, man, that's a cool-looking word. I'm like, do you, do you know what it means? They're like, no, nah, I just thought it was cool. Okay. You need to consider your choices more deeply every once in a while. But yeah, so it means it is finished, to die. It means to be perfected. That's what it means. It means to be perfected. Or as we're going to say, and, and this is the third thing, it means love accomplished. Love accomplished. And so we might ask, what was it that was finished? What was finished that day? And I want to I quickly give you four things to think on, especially in the next week and the lead up to Easter. Uh, four things. So I know I told you there were going to be four points. Now I'm giving you four sub points, which if, if you're a pastor, you know you're not supposed to do that. So I'm giving you four times four is like 16 things. I'm asking you to keep up here, but we're going to go super quick through these four things. All right. The first thing that was finished was Christ's sufferings were finished. His humiliation was finished. You remember Jesus was born as a baby, right? He was born into poverty. He was treated as less than a man by even, even those around him. 
He was uh, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, right? But that's, but that's over now. As he's hanging on the cross, he's saying that is over now. While those men cast lots for his clothing, the king is about to enter into glory. He's going to be in paradise while they try to win a dirty pair of sandals. His sufferings are completed. He is done with that. The second is that his mission is finished. He has done the work that the Father has given him to do. He's eaten the food that is his Father's will, and he's drunk the cup of suffering that was given to him. He has proclaimed the kingdom of God and proven himself through his signs and wonders. There's no more work for him to do. The mission is finished. It's accomplished. That's the second thing. The third thing is that the prophecies of his first coming are finished. We've seen John reference several in this passage, but there were many, many more. In Isaiah 7, 14, he prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. It had been prophesied in Genesis 22 that the Messiah would come from the seed of Abraham, and in 2 Samuel 7, that he would come from the line of David. In Micah 5, 2, that he would be born in Bethlehem. In Hosea 5, that he would be forced to flee into Egypt. And and Isaiah 49 said that he would come back from Egypt. Malachi 3.1 told us that there would come before him a prophet like Elijah. And we saw that in John the Baptist, who was super weird, right? In Isaiah 35, we were told that the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. We saw this in his ministry. And I'll be honest with you, we pray for it every single week here, every day. Zechariah 9.9 prophesied of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, humble and mounted on a donkey. In fact, it went even more than that to say that he would be on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Psalm 69 told us that he would be hated. Isaiah 8 told us that he would be rejected. Psalm 41 told us that a friend would betray him. Isaiah 53 told us that he would be numbered with transgressors, which is where we find him at the cross. And in Psalm 22... We were told that he would be pierced through his hands and feet, and we could go on and on and on. There's over 300 specific prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus fulfills. And I don't know how to do the math on that because I'm not as good as my five-year-old, but it's a big number with a lot of zeros. This is not a coincidence. This isn't just something that happened. This isn't because a group of collaborative writers got together over the course of 2,500 years to produce a book that all works seamlessly together. No, Jesus is the Messiah because God has deemed it so and all of Scripture testifies to that truth. That's the third thing. Sorry, that one got a little long. The fourth thing is that the atonement Was finished. And what that means is that anything that you and I might try to do to add to our salvation would only subtract from it. When he says it is finished, it means there's nothing else that you can do. It's like standing on the beach. And looking out, I know it's spring break and some of y'all are about to head to the beach. So you're going to have the opportunity to do this. You can actually do this. Oh, you can stand on the beach and look at the most beautiful sunset on the Atlantic that you can imagine. And you'll talk about how it looks like the sky is bursting in light. It looks like the heavens have actually come down to earth and they're screaming of the glory of God. And then you take out a Sharpie and try to to draw on the sunset and improve it. Now, if you saw someone doing that, 
on the beach. And you said, what are you doing? I'm just, make, I'm just touching up what God's done a little bit here. Now, they don't have a canvas or anything. They're just riding in the sky. I've got the cap off and everything. And so they're riding and they're going, yeah, I'm just, I'm just making it a little better. Now, you wouldn't think they were right in the head. You'd say, our kids, let's go down here, right? Maybe this end of the beach is more our area. It's okay. There's crazy out there. But you wouldn't think, yeah, they're actually accomplishing that. In fact, you'd think, no, no, you're missing it. And all of your action and all your effort to try to improve on what God has done, you're actually decreasing from it. You're distracting from the beauty of what's happening. You're not enjoying it. You're not drinking it. Y'all, that's what we do every time that we think we can get God to like us more by the stuff that we do. We're like the, we're like the clown out on the beach with our Sharpie trying to fix the sunset that's right before us. And how God must look down on us and think, what are you doing? Remember I said, it is finished. You can't earn it anymore. You can't merit it. You can't improve upon it. It's finished. Charles Spurgeon said, if you begin at Bethlehem and go on to Golgotha and look minutely at every portion of it, the private as well as the public, the silent as well as the spoken part, you will find that it is finished, completed, perfected. Listen, you cannot add anything to something that's perfect. You can't win a game that's already been won. You can't finish a race that's already been completed. And so in Christ, the debt that we owe has been marked with a cross that says, not not pending, but paid in full. That's what love accomplishes at the cross. And the last thing that we see is love proclaimed. Love proclaimed. We saw Pilate proclaim Jesus' innocence, but he didn't do anything to uphold that fact. In fact, he ultimately uh, condemned the innocent one. But in verse 35, John says something that would change the world, something that would motivate him, that would move him, that would strengthen him for the work that was left to him. Seeing the soldier, seeing the soldier take that spear and ram it into the side of Jesus. And seeing the blood of our Lord and Savior spill out onto the ground, John said this, He who saw it, talking about himself, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. You you get the sense there that John could hardly believe what he was seeing. You know, right up until he saw that spear, I firmly believed that he was standing there going, when's he coming down? Every ounce of his faith had said at some point, he's just going to come down off of that cross, he's going to be alive, he's going to get his clothes back from these fools down here, and we are going to take over. We're going to run this show like it was supposed to be. The Messiah was supposed to come in, we were going to take over, we were going to push the Romans out, we were going to accomplish everything. And when Jesus cried out, it is finished, you have to wonder how much of that John still held on to. And when he saw that blood flow out of Jesus' side, he knew it was over. And so he says that this is what happened. You can question me, you can doubt me, you can accuse me, you can even try to destroy me, but it will not change the fact that this is the truth. On this Palm Sunday... We're proclaiming what is true. 
We stand with John. We stand with the other evangelists on the truth that Paul proclaimed to his young apprentice, Timothy. This is what he said to him. He said, the, trust, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's the truth. Is that Jesus died in my place. That he died for you. He died for me at the cross, where we see love wounded, where we see love extended, where we see love accomplished, and where we see love proclaimed. It's through his death that we are welcomed in, because he took my sin and offers me his righteousness. Now, what do we do with that? Where do we go from here? Well, I like what Again, what Spurgeon said, he said, As long as there is breath in our bodies, let us serve Christ. As long as we can think, as long as we can speak, as long as we can work, let us serve him. Let us serve him with our last gasp. And if it be possible, let us try to set some work going that will glorify him when we are dead and gone. I don't. I don't know if you people are concerned about a legacy. Uh, most of us are, think we're invincible most of the time. We don't, we're not really concerned about what people would say about us or what our children would think about us once we're dead and gone. I think what Spurgeon's getting at is here, you need to leave a legacy of faith. That is, you're working now in your life. Now, I know we got a lot of teachers in here. Y'all are, y'all are half here because you got spring break this week, and I get it. I mean, I'm with you a little bit. My family's jetting uh, this afternoon. I won't see them for the next four days. It's going to be terrible. Um, we are, and there's going to be no rest in our home this week. And um, my courageous wife is taking them. What is your legacy of faith that's being left behind? Let us try to set some work going that will glorify him when we are dead and gone. You see, that's why we say here that our mission as the church is to join God in the renewal of all things. We have no expectation that's going to happen today, that that's going to happen tomorrow. That's going to happen in Jesus' timing. And so we don't just say it, we have to do it. Passe verbo, we feed with the word. Passe vita, we feed with the life. We tell the world the truth of our Savior. We have to show the world His love in and through our lives. We do that in our homes. do that in our public and private lives. We do that in His church. We extend that same love that He extended on the cross. We proclaim that same truth that the evangelist proclaimed. And we do it in the faith knowing that He carries us to the end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts better than we do. I mean, we think we know ourselves, but but you know everything that's in there. And I pray that you'd work in spite of us. I pray that you would hold us, carry us, lead us, guide us, renew us and restore us even today. God, don't let us walk out of here just, just thinking, well, that was nice. Or that wasn't so great. Help us to walk out of here today being drawn more deeply and more passionately into a life with you. 
Help people to see you when they look at us. I pray that in his name, in Jesus' name, amen.